Hey, I'm Sam Pressler. And I'm PJ Walsh. Welcome to In Stitches, the podcast that explores humanity and humor. PJ, uh, who do we have on this week? And this is a good one. It's uh, my good buddy, Matt Eisman. You might recognize him as the host of American Ninja Warrior. But what's beautiful about this episode and what we love to do here is we get off stage. We get the struggles that he had when the camera wasn't rolling. And uh, Matt has had some substantial health struggles that just is fascinating, fascinating to talk about. So I'm excited for everyone to hear his story. Yeah, this is really engaging conversation with a guy who has a very public personality and we get to have a bit more of a personal conversation with him. Before we go into it, I just want to make a quick note. We recorded this conversation a little over a month ago. So we were still at that point in the height of uh, lockdown and it was prior to uh, the murder of George Floyd and the preceding uprisings and national conversations around race. So I just want y'all to keep that in the back of mind as we go into this interview. But without further ado, really excited for uh, this conversation with Matt Eisman. All right, Matt Eisman, welcome to In Stitches. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, PJ. Matt Eisman. <laughs> Once he does that, I start talking like PJ talking like me. Because <laughs> the thing I'll say is, this is how long we've been friends, Sam, is Matt and I met 20 years ago, and whenever we answered our phone, we go into the voice of the bits that we used to do. <laughs> Officer Walsh! PJ Walsh! Dr. Eisman! <laughs> Dr. Eisman's son! <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, as PJ said, you are a doctor, or you yes, were a, you you is it? Once I technically a doctor still am. Yeah, it, I mean, it's is it like, like the Marine a, Corps. It's like once right. you know. Well, it? not as dramatic as that. It's not as though I have a killer <laughs> instinct. It's just I have a degree on the wall that says MD. So technically, I'm a doctor. That's. That's it. So I'm interested. I would probably be as lethal as a Marine right now, though, if I were practicing medicine. So best it's I have retired. It's enough time that goes, it's like a Marine. It's like too much time to put the <laughs> rifle in his hand. That's it. <laughs> we, if you're the person showing up at the ICU, we got, we got bigger problems going yeah. on. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So what initially led you to want to be a doctor? I decided to start pursuing medicine midway through college. And I think the, the, the honest thing that really spurred it was my brother. Uh, he, he, he's uh, two years older than me. He graduated from college and he didn't know what he was going to do with his life. And so he ended up moving out to Jackson Hole and getting a job as a construction worker and skiing. And I thought, oh, I, I thought college was kind of the end. I thought you get into college and life just unfolds. I didn't realize now college is just the beginning. You got to figure out what you're going to do, which is kind of an obvious and embarrassing epiphany that I had. So I, I just, I, I really started kind of questioning what, what do I want to do? What appeals to me? And at that point I'd, I'd taken some sciences and I was, I was very good in the sciences. Um, I, I loved people. I loved being around people. I knew that I loved uh, interacting with people, making them feel better. And I think the, the biggest influence was probably my dad. My dad uh, is a doctor. And a world-renowned physician, traveled the world, uh, an, an expert in tuberculosis. And he never, never once pressured me into medicine. He never said, follow in my footsteps, become a doctor. He never said that. But I think my dad was such a, a big figure, as you know, for most kids, I think your, your dad's your hero. And I saw how much satisfaction he got from his job and how much it meant to him and how much his patients... Uh, 
how much he influenced their lives. And so I thought, all right, I like science. I want to help people. And I see how much my dad loves being a doctor and what a difference you can make in people's lives. So it was, it, it was obvious. Like it, was, it was the perfect job for me on paper. And, mm-hmm. and so then I just started moving towards that goal. And, and then it, it became kind of in the way I think that college where I, I've realized something about myself where I love to have a, a, a challenge. I love a goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and usually those goals have come in the form of kind of outside of me, where it was either through school, through being challenged by teachers or, or sports, um, through coaches. And so all of a sudden now I had another goal that, that I realized when I just put my head down and, and, and grind, I, I feel like that's when life was easiest for me. Mm. And so I had that new focus now and a focus and, you know, selfishly, if, if I admit it, the other thing was, I remember in college, you're with all your friends. And I always felt like everybody else knew what they were doing with their lives, that mm-hmm. they just had it figured out. And I, I, would, I would panic when people would say, what are you going to do? And you try to give some answer that would get people off your back, right? That would kind of make them. And, and when you said, I'm becoming a doctor, people respected that. And, mm-hmm. and if I'm being honest, <laughs> that was really appealing to me, that idea of, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm making something of myself. I'm becoming a doctor. And I, I, I like that. And I like that uh, if I'm, I don't think I've ever really said that out loud. Because <laughs> it's kind of shameful. I mean, it really is like, my God, you're going in to help people. And yet the reason, you know, one of the things that I did like about it at that time in college was it's something that people respect. Mm-hmm. And I think I crave that respect. Not now, not that I'm in entertainment. <laughs> yeah. So, what would, you know, you, you, you went from, uh, you, you, what was that transition like? You know, your your you know, father I, was a doctor. You went into, and I, you know, when I tell the story, I kind of say like I, you know, I make it neat. But the reality was, I think so. It it built. I I think I started to realize once I got into residency. So I go through medical school, and you almost don't have a chance to look up because you're you're constantly just trying to stay alive. It is you know, as hard as I've ever worked and been challenged and you're surrounded by some of the most gifted and motivated people. And so you're, you're, there's a real competitive environment. And so it was just kind of survival. And then I got into training um, where you really are interacting with patients Mm. and where it's not so much what grade are you getting? It's, Hey, how are, how are, how are you taking care of these people? And, and I just, it, it was, just this feeling of I would go into the hospital and I, rem- I remember when I would drive to the hospital when I knew I was going to be on call, which meant you're on for probably 36 hours when you go to that hospital and you may or may not sleep and you're not, not going to sleep much. And I just remember when I was driving to the hospital, I would have this pit in my stomach like I don't, I, this is not where I want to be. And I remember feeling this is a horrible feeling to have because I'm going to go talk to people who are placing their lives in my hands. And so it was just this feeling of, uh, I, I started to feel like a, like a fraud. I started to feel like a fraud around the patient, my patients. And I'm like, I'm not helping them. And I just, I, I had this sick feeling in my stomach all the time that I was not living the life I was meant to. And it's so 
when when I I I, I had this realization, and, and I remember the night. It was in January. I was in the intensive care unit, which is obviously where the most critically sick patients are, and we're getting slammed. We're getting patient after patient after patient, and you always have a backstop when when you're in your first year of training. And I, I had a, a student who was a year older than me. And then, of course, you have other doctors you can call fellows up, up the chain. But at a certain point, it's like, hey, man, take care of your business. And so the, the, the doctor who's with me in the hospital, this second-year doctor is like, hey, we got seven patients. You got to just start writing orders. And I'm writing these orders going, I think I know what I'm doing. And just this panic, though, if I get it wrong, someone's, someone could die. And, and I realized, like, hey, I, next year, I'll be that student. I'll be, or I'll be that second year guy in charge of someone else and so on. And I'm like, I just didn't feel like I could do it. And that was when I said, I, I have to reevaluate this mm. because I, I can't sustain this. And because either I'm going to break or someone's going to die, either outcome is horrible. And so that's when I said, I, I have to do something else. And I'd done stand up a handful of times at that point, first in New York when I was in med school and then in Colorado during training. And so I thought, all right, you know, I'm, if I take a break from medicine, what do I do? And I'd never really, I, you know, other than a few times of stand-up, I'd always been school, sports, I'd never done anything creative. And I thought, I, I wanted to try to do something to reset my mind just to figure out what was going to make me happy. And so I, I kick around, all right, you, maybe you, you know, you become a ski bum, you travel the world, you become a bartender. But I thought, let me try stand-up comedy. Let me try something the opposite of what I've done just to awaken a different part of my brain and see. And, and I think what I was anticipating to happen was that I would get this uncertainty. I, I thought I'd grow up. Mm. I thought I would get it out of my system and I would go, now you can be an adult. Now you can go back to medicine. Now you can help people. And instead, I move out to Los Angeles. I meet PJ. We're doing open mics. And you were at the beginning, you're not playing theaters. You're, you're, not, you're not in a comedy club. You're, you're playing in laundromats. You're playing in restaurants while people are eating and, and baseball games are on over your head. There's no crowd other than other comedians. It's awful. And I loved it. And, <laughs> and as I got on stage, within a few weeks, I was like, this this is what I meant to do. Mm. And it was, it really was like a, a, just a light going on of instead of doing what I thought I should do or what, you know, look good on paper, I found something that I, I just felt in my bones. This is what I was meant to do. Awesome. Well, back in those days too, when, cause Matt, Matt, myself, Matt, our friend on Michael Betts and I all unknown to each other, just decided to get in our cars on the same exact day. And wait, was it September 1st? September 1st, 1999. Yep. And drive out to LA. And we wow. didn't realize that we all decided to do that. And the one thing that I knew that was apparent when I first met Matt was up until that point, he did not work in anything creative. <laughs> he was very He's saying my joke stunk at the beginning, <laughs> Sam. <laughs> they haven't gotten much better, but... No, but see, the thing that I appreciated about Matt was uh, he came at it from such a, like, like before Google, there was Matt Eisman. That's what we used to say. <laughs> because he was, he was so <laughs> smart about everything. And I came from more of like the, the Navy, kind of the, everyone shaped me. I was like a storyteller. So the reason I think that we became such good friends, it was so, it was such different dynamics heading towards the same thing that, because 
honestly, there's only so many people as you go through life that stay in your life for such a long period of time. And when you go through those trenches, when you go through the yeah. open mics, when you're sitting there and you're watching your friend eat it on stage, which both of us do, and then uh -huh. you get in that car and you go to Denny's and you talk it out, uh, there's a bond that, that just forms. And you're right. And PJ, I think that that was the other thing too, is we had different approaches, but the thing that unified us was the, the passion, I think, and the way we wanted to approach it too. Even though we had these different approaches, the thing we wanted to do was we didn't want to be out there to party. We didn't want to be out there to, you know, we, we wanted to get better. We wanted to be as funny as possible. And we treated it like a job. We were doing it six or seven nights a week. And it, we were together all the time. And when somebody would lag, someone wouldn't do it, we would pick each other up. And I, when, you know, I, we, we said this countless times, when you're talking to people starting out, the, I think the two pieces of advice that we give her, do it, just do it. There's no substitute for doing it. And the other thing is find people at your level um, with whom your people, find your people who will share this experience with you because it is, an, it, it, it can be a soul crushing experience at times. And to have those people who have your back and, and can pick you up and I think, see, see how you do things and hold you accountable. That, which is again, I think why we've been friends for over 20 years. The thing I wanted to ask too, too, Matt, because I don't even think we ever visited this, is I know for myself during those days, the seed of doubt would always plant in when I'd wake up in the middle of the night. I'd wake up in the middle of the night and be like, what are yeah. you doing? You know, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing? And then I'd put my head back on a pillow, talk to you guys, your friends push you through. Throughout that time, you know, when, when was that little doubt? Uh, that, uh, so it's funny. I, I, I think there was something that because I'd come from – so. The reason I, I I say, you know, people go, man, you would have been a lot cheaper if you figured out before med school that you wanted to be a comedian. I'm like, yeah, it would have. But the thing I think that that medicine gave me when I came out was, and I think PJ had it too from being in the military and our friend Michael Batts had it from being a high-level college football player was we'd all accomplish something. And I think it, it, and it helped us have an identity because the reality is in comedy, you know, all you're doing is searching for your voice. You're searching for your identity. But we'd already found something that we could hang our hats on at the end of the day, where even if we were bombing, even if people were like, man, you're not funny. It's like, that's okay. I know I felt that way before and I accomplished something with hard work and determination. And I know I'm bringing that to this. So I think having been a doctor was so helpful in that, you know, when you're bombing, when you're going out for auditions and you're, and you're eating it, that sense of, I know I've done something before. I know I'm not, I don't need the validation from this, even though I crave it because I have that validation from before. I, I love that. And I, I think it, it relates to a lot of the experience um, that I've had working with, um, you know, the veterans in the ASAP community is it's not about replacing your identity as a veteran with your identity as a cop. Yeah. It's about expanding that identity. It's being a veteran and it's being a doctor and um, because that's how you have a healthy relationship to the art form, to the process, to the job. And so I love that you each had that different. I'm an athlete and yeah. I'm a comic. I'm a veteran and I'm a comic. I'm a doctor and I'm a comic. Uh, Sam, honestly, he just, you took me back so many years there, Matt, because I remember sitting in the apartment on Breeze, one Breeze. <laughs> right? and two Breeze Avenue. Two was, Breeze. One was the other one across the street. <laughs> right on, on, on Venice Boulevard. And oh, we yeah. had that conversation of we've all had miniature careers. 
And it was just, there, there was something mm. about that. There's, there's something about having that, that accomplishment. And each of us had that. So that's, that was. Uh, and, and it's a funny thing, Sam. I think, you know, you, you also realize, you know, in comedy, you're never done, right? Your, your act is never done. No joke is ever done. Mm. And your, you know, your quest to find that voice and to e continue evolving is never done. And I think, I think it's, a, you know, obviously it's, it's a metaphor for life, this idea of, you know, we're always in life trying to, trying to find that, you know, to, to analyze yourself. And I think, I, I think now talking about mindset, talking about reflecting on yourself is much more accepted, but I know 20 years ago, you know, I was like, nah, you know, you're kind of the bluster, the, the beard. And I think as comedians, I, I often say being on stage was very therapeutic because you get to, in a humorous way, talk about things. And, and when you, what was crazy was when you found something, some little thing that you might've been ashamed of and you, you, you hear the laughter and PJ says it's that surprise recognition mm -hmm. where people go, Oh my God, I think that too. And, and that sense of, I, I love that with comedy mm -hmm. where, you know, when you, when you really dig down, when you get so specific, I, I, I like to say the more specific you get, the more universal it becomes because people might not relate to that specific instance, but they will certainly relate to that emotion that it brings out. And, and that's, you know, which is always the quest and, you know, that we some very often fall short in, in our jokes. <laughs> But, but here's the other thing on that time period. Now, with this quest, with your dad being a surgeon, you know, his son's a doctor. At, at any point, was your dad hoping you'd grow out of it? He never, again, you know, ne and, and I've told this story where the when I told him I was leaving, he said, life is short, do what makes you happy, which is the most amazing advice I've gotten. Mm. But he's lived it, you know, and to my face, again, if you talk to him, he, he might've thought when, when I was doing a commercial for athletes foot, he might've thought, what, what, what is my son, the doctor doing? But I think they, they've always been incredibly supportive, which is important. I think, you know, a lot of people come out here because maybe they, they didn't have that from the family. And I think PJ, Michael, and I all are very close to our family and, and had family that had supported us, and I think in in various ways and levels. But I, I my dad, I don't think ever questioned. And part of it, I, I felt like he felt the golden era of medicine was kind of ending, and saw more of this um, where the bottom line was more important than the the quality of patient care. And I think he kind of had a building frustration. So I think when when I left, he thought, you know, if if it isn't your passion, don't do it because this is a very, it's a changing job, but it's going to be more of a challenge. And I think he kind of foresaw some of what, what has come to pass for doctors and why job satisfaction has dropped. One of the things that I like about both of your experiences, just hearing it, and I don't think even PJ, I've known that part about your experience is that on the outside, you could maybe perceive that you were running away from something, but you were really running towards something. You had this objective, this goal, this piece of your life that you wanted to explore. And it was like not coming from a place of deficit, but it was already, it was like grounded in this thing that was energizing and exciting to you. And I think that's like a really, um, that's not always how people enter into comedy and the arts. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I but I, I think that is, that is, you're right. I, I think it's a much better and uh, reliable pull, you know, when you have something pulling you forward. 
as opposed to that fear that is, you know, mm-hmm. driving you away. Um, and, you know, there, there definitely is. There are definitely times. And, and to kind of get back to your question, though, PJ, I, I think I had, I, I was so, and the word I always used to describe myself was enthusiastic. And when I got out here, I felt like I was, the weight of the world was off. I was shot out of a cannon. I was living just this life that I, I never, I never thought entertainment was an option. I never thought getting to tell jokes and do commercials was an option. So I'm leading this life where I love what I do. I'm surrounded by friends. I feel like I'm not, I'm getting to play all the time. I'm, I'm, I was actually making better money than I was in medicine. And, and so I, I think even though, you know, that it didn't necessarily happen, everything happened immediately, I, I was having enough success. I actually started to get much more anxious, 39 and a half years old, I just woke in, in the middle of the night, and it's just what you said, PJ, in the night, everything's more magnified. I remember waking up going, wait a second, I'm almost 40. I'd never thought of my age before. I'd never thought, hey, you're old. I, I'd never thought of it until I'm almost 40, which means I'm almost 50, which means I'm almost dead. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> What's going to happen? What, you know, who's, what am I going to do when I get older? And all of a sudden, all these obvious life questions and responsibilities that most people think about very early. I felt like that was when I kind of the the world of of adulthood opened up, and it was, and it really was a, like a shift where I, I, I've I, I've felt a lot more of that anxiety and that pressure on 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 life and what you're doing with your life and whether it's legacy or whatever it is. So it has been. I, I really said to that point, it was like this. It, it protracted childhood and not that I lead the most mature life now, but it was at that point, I felt like there was that shift where all of a sudden now at night you do, you do worry about what's going to happen and what if things go wrong, that, that, uh, the fears, the fears came in. Yeah. And, and, and as we're talking through this, Matt, I mean, it, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of positivity in here and you talk about not really dealing with your like confronting fears or anxieties till you turn 39, but I know that you know you've been very public about your history with health challenges throughout your life. Um, so it ha- it wasn't all uh, easy sailing for you. Yeah, no, yeah. I guess I did kind of sail over that. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, PJ was there as as so I have rheumatoid arthritis. I was diagnosed in two thousand two, um, but it was it was the eighteen months leading up to it where I did that, that and that that was something where. Um, I did physically and, and, and you're right, mentally, I think that was when I, I lost my body, right? It, you, you, uh, until then I'd been young and healthy, I'd played sports, you know, we were working out all the time and over 18 months, I, I started having pain in my right index finger. And then it just, it spread to my feet, to my neck, to my back. Uh, the pain was getting so bad. I would sleep with, with like a whiplash collar, like one of those, my cousin Vinny things, on my neck, I had to, I stopped working out altogether <laughs> for the first time in my life. I was just, I was exhausted to the point where I would sleep, you know, nine, 10, 11 hours a day and still feel spent. And I, I, I probably was depressed even if I didn't realize it. But the thing that, that kept me going was being able to do comedy, mm. was being able to get out because I, I, I will say this to this day, I don't care 
how tired I am or if I'm sick, I don't care if I'm stressed. Once I get on stage, the second I grab that mic and look at the crowd, it goes away because I, I, you're, 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 you become present. Mm -hmm. The thing I love about comedy is I don't know anything else that I've done that makes, that forces you to be so present. Because as comedians, we know if you're not present, the crowd's going to sense it. You're going to bomb. You can recite things. Eventually, it will catch up to you. But there's just something that I love about comedy to, to be in that moment and to have your mind. I always, it's like it expands. I always think of it when they talked about Michael Jordan. When, you know, when he was in the zone, the hoop would be seven feet across. You couldn't miss. And it's that same feeling when you're on stage and your jokes are working and you know this next one's good and you you see everything slowing down like, like uh, Neo in the Matrix. And it's such a good feeling when you get off, there's just this euphoric high. Mm -hmm. And when I was sick, when I was, when my body was falling apart, to, to be around PJ and, and Michael and to be able to go out and perform. And, and even if it wasn't performing, we would go to Denny's and we would laugh. We always, always were laughing. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's why, so, you know, it, it really, I, I was lucky enough that I started treatment and, and physically I, I made a big recovery. But it was one of those things that I think changed changed how I looked at things. It, it gave me a, a new appreciation for comedy, but also for kind of why I've become active, why I initially really became active with the Arthritis Foundation was when I was diagnosed, I would go to these Arthritis Foundation meetings and 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 see people who didn't respond to therapy or or did and and but there were the medicine had come too late and seeing how ravaged they were and just seeing how mm. I, I think having been a doctor, I don't, I, I never appreciate it until I ended up on the other side of the stethoscope that we focus so much on the physical and not the mental and living through losing that physical ability to see the mental strain that it took and, and how much when I started to come out of it, how much the mental element coming back improved my physical well-being. I think I, I wanted to I wanted to share my story because when I was diagnosed, I there weren't there weren't especially young men there weren't young men with rheumatoid arthritis who would share their stories or had or that that were as as readily accessible. The internet was still in its infancy back then, <laughs> relatively speaking. <laughs> and I wanted to say I said I don't want people who are newly diagnosed to constantly see the worst case scenarios because. You know, when you look up on a textbook, they don't show people who are well, they show the sickest people and that's scary. And I thought, hey, I want people to see someone who seems young and vibrant, who you wouldn't know has an illness and who's being out there and hopefully, you know, having a full career. So they say, hey, rheumatoid arthritis doesn't mean that it's the end of something. It, it, I can still lead this full life. And so I, I think when I saw that and then saw, you know, how, how people who were newly diagnosed would reach out to me and I, and it was gratifying again, having left medicine to kind of feel like, Hey, this is a way to still help people to, to be able to combine that through, through sharing my story, through trying to use humor specifically to share my story. There's something in that. And, and MPJ, I just want to touch on this because you put something together in my head that I don't think I ever had. And it's like, that's what this is for. This is just Sam's therapy. <laughs> and I'm, I'm working this out as we're talking, so we'll, we'll see. But is it, is it this, this? Yeah, this is, we, we, we've actually discussed this. It's, it's hard to access. But 
there's this internal external dynamic around comedy and humor. Um, and coming from a place where you're doing it for yourself and coming from a place when you're doing it for others. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it become unhealthy when it's unbalanced, when you're just doing humor for other people Mm -hmm. and like you've lost why you're doing it for yourself. And I've seen it unhealthy when it's overly selfish and it's like, I'm doing comedy, fuck what these people think. Right. Right. And it seems like in your experience, just as you've described it, there was this piece of like, I did comedy and use humor to get on stage to be present. And this was like something for me in this time. And comedy was a way that I can tell my story so I can like make other people feel less alone. And like that to me seems like a, just like a really positive formula for the way like comedy and humor can play a, you know, a good role in people's lives. Yeah. And I think you see that we, PJ and I talk about this all the time when you kind of try to look at the successful comedians and the ones I think who do it the best are the ones who really tapped into something authentic with themselves. And the other thing we see is inevitably when someone would rise, you'd see people starting to clone them. And, you know, whether it was Larry, the cable guy or Dane cook or Foxworthy um, or, or Chris rock, how inevitably you would see people adapting their cadence. You'd see people adapting their their tone and that, that subject matter. Doug Stanhope is another one where you see these comedians, people all of a sudden start to go into, draw that element out of them. And it is an inescapable part of your growth as a comedian is drawing from those you love. And my favorite comedian is Brian Regan. Brian Regan's a guy, once you hear him talk, you can't stop. And it's it's one of those things where you see people though, and we you've seen people have success emulating somebody else, but I think there's always a cap to it or when they get there, the only way they sustain it is by eventually figuring out, all right, this has gotten me here, but the way I sustain it is figuring out what is really me. And, and that's, you know, again, I, I'm, I am by no means saying I have that figured out. I think that is, you know, that is the biggest challenge with comedy is you know, a lot of my jokes, I think that I tell, or some of them are, I've outgrown them. They are from a, a previous version of me, but I just, sometimes they still work and you tell them. And it, it is that thing of, and PJ and I were talking about it because uh, I think you know it when you know, and every comedian will experience this when you listen to your material and you think, oh my God, I am, I'm going to smash my phone if I have to listen to another second of my own voice. And yet I, I was telling PJ, so I did this head and I was like, I'm yelling, I'm selling it. I'm, I'm, I'm not being sincere until the very end when I started talking about Apprentice and Arnold Schwarzenegger because it was so authentic of how I really felt. I heard my voice, I dropped down into it and I was just talking. And I was like such a cue of, because I didn't believe the other stuff, I was having to put this bullshit on top of it to sell it. And again, it's, you know, it, at one point I did believe it and there were ways to discover it. And that's another thing PJ and I talk about. God, we were doing, we had such a good time uh, right around before he got married. We did a, a week at the Virginia Beach Funny Bone and we just talked comedy the way we used to. Mm. And one of the things we were saying is we were writing things that were funny and, and we just kept asking, wait a second, why was this funny in the first place? What initially made me tell this? Because you see that where sometimes you get something and then uh, something pops in that's clever, but kind of gets you away from that. And all of a sudden, 
you're developing that. And this joke becomes something where I'm saying this because I, it's getting a reaction, but it got away from why it was initially funny. And when you watch the really good comedians, man, you just feel that. And Chappelle is somebody who just, and, and Bill Burr too, I think where they, they have this clear point of view that you feel with everything. And sometimes the laughs aren't even that it's funny. It's that it's so honest and the recognition that it's just, it's, it's undeniable, which I know PJ always, you got to be undeniable. Well, and I think the thing, Matt, and in your defense, uh, you're very busy. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's not like, yeah. it's not like you're out there on the stage every single night and you're like, oh, these things aren't being put together. I mean, you, you have a lot of shows you host, <laughs> you, you know, you have like, like anybody, I should, I should be huge. Like put it on me. I'm the one out there doing stand up all the time. Nobody knows. <laughs> I will but, say though, what did I say? The last time we did it, I was like, man, your jokes have, you're, you're performing, your jokes had gotten to the next level where it is oh, that thing you. of, yeah. Cause you were putting the time in. You were sitting on the ships. You were writing your material. You were listening. You were honing it. You weren't settling for this got a laugh. You were always like, where's, where's the bigger laugh? Where's the next thing? And I think that's where we, where friendship and appreciation comes in. And then actually the work that we both get to do with Sam with the Armsters, our partnership, because we get to see the young excitement of new comedy. Because when you do get to where we are, you learn some tricks. You mm -hmm. learn how to make something funny to the audience, but not funny to you. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to brush over a big part of, of your journey, man, especially with, with RA, which was, it. it's not like you got diagnosed right away. So yeah. I think a big part of comedy for you, it, it was a life preserver because it took about a year and a half yep. before you even, and I didn't even know even testing your body doesn't cooperate and it, it could take that long. So on top of, for me, I know comedy has been a life preserver for me at a lot of times during my life. And I could, you know, during that time, as you voiced it, I think everybody needs to know that it was a year and a half of you trying to figure this out. And I was, you're right. I was, I, and I was going to rheumatologists. They were testing me for RA and the tests were coming back negative. And eventually it was an X-ray where, I, and I'd had x-rays a few months before they got another set and the guy puts the x-ray up and he goes, how long have you had rheumatoid arthritis? I said, I don't, they tested me. And he goes, you have rheumatoid arthritis. This is classic RA. He goes, go get tested. I'm like, all right. And I got tested and I was grossly, I was, everything had converted, but it's, and it's, it's it, again, what a lesson as a doctor where I saw this, where we tested for it. So we stopped considering that. And, and you see that, that is such, mm -hmm. I, I, I've seen that with, with uh, other people I know with health struggles, some loved ones, where someone got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, which is one of the easiest diagnoses to make, but they'd missed it for probably five years because they tested for it, hadn't come back positive, and they just had ruled it out. And, uh, you know, it's a lesson where I, I think one of the things I learned was to listen to your body, to trust when you feel something's wrong, when you know something's wrong, just if someone tells you there's nothing wrong with you, you don't always have to accept that when you know deep down something is. And I think it is that thing of, of trusting, you know, tr trusting yourself, which is hard to do. And, and then finding, you know, eventually I found doctors who were partners, who, who really were collaborative, which has been key. Mm. What I also think is interesting is now you got the diagnosis. You have rheumatoid arthritis. Now you're now here's the answer. This is where I'm going. 
I got to live with this for the rest of my life. At one point that always sticks out to me is it actually helped diagnose cancer for you. Yeah. I mean, there's another health thing, I guess. So, yeah. When I was like, life was great. I was 39. But yeah, yeah but the thing that is, is here's this thing that you struggled with in a way that saved your life. Rheumatoid arthritis saved my life from cancer. So yeah, I, I, 2007, um, I'm living with rheumatoid arthritis and medicine I'm on the way you treat it is you, it's an autoimmune disease. My immune system is attacking my own body. So the treatment down regulates my immune system, which leaves you susceptible to infection right now. This is not a great time to, to have it, but fortunately it looks, doesn't look bad. But so I was having some pain in my chest and I thought probably nothing. But it could be an infection. And because of my immune system, it could be suppressed. This could be spreading. I should get it checked out. I go see a doctor who gets a chest x-ray. He's like, your lungs are fine. But he was really thorough. And he talked to me and, and he realized I'd, I'd flown recently. He said, you know, there's, when you fly, you're at risk for clots. And it could be a clot in your lung. I, I just want to rule it out. I want to get a CAT scan. So he, he sends me to the emergency room. Friday, this was a Friday night at like 6 p.m. And emergency rooms are very busy Friday nights at 6 p.m. And I wasn't an urgent case. So I ended up waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And it wasn't until finally like one in the morning, they're like, all right, we'll get you in for this CAT scan. And 30 minutes later, the doctor comes in and he says, you're fine, go home. The next morning, Saturday morning at like 9 a.m., I get a call and it's the radiologist. So it was just an emergency room doctor who read it, who looked at the lungs. He said, it's fine. The radiologist looked at the whole scan and he said, on the bottom of the scan, there's a solid mass in your kidney. There's an 85% chance this is malignant. You have to get it checked out as soon as possible. And then he said, have a nice day. <laughs> I thought, Not now, pal. Not now. And sure enough, I, I you know, go to the doctor. I, I get it checked out. I had to have surgery to remove it. And it wasn't until they had to do the pathology on the tumor, they took it out. And it was five days after the surgery. So now it's been about a month, five weeks where I've been told, maybe you have cancer. And the doctor comes in, he said, it was malignant. You have cancer, but we think we got it all. There's a 95% chance you're cured. So go live your life. And so it was weird where I, mm. and he said, we got it early because of this CAT scan. The pain I was having in my chest, completely unrelated. It was just me being a wuss. This tumor was asymptomatic. He's like, this would have spread and the, it would have presented when it had metastasized. And at that point, your survival rate goes below 50%. So this, wow. you catching this early saved your life. And the only reason I caught it was that rheumatoid arthritis. So rheumatoid arthritis <laughs> saved me from cancer. And it was, you know, it's weird because... I'm like, I, I'm a cancer survivor, but I didn't find out I had cancer until in the very same breath, I find out I'm also likely cured. So mm. it, it was, again, when I, when I look at people who go through cancer, where they're going through multiple rounds of radiation and chemotherapy and their body being ravaged by it, I was very fortunate in this to have this surgery and then essentially be free from cancer. And it was a 10 year period where I was getting CAT scans and they were checking to make sure, but it's now past where they say my rate is, my risk is back down to zero. Well, hearing you say that then it brings me back to, I, I so I kind of get why you had, you're saying, oh, like up until I was 39, things were fine because right. there's like two ways you could view the world. Like there's people who view the world and they're like, fuck, I got, 
I got rheumatoid arthritis and on top of that, I had fucking cancer. And like, they're complaining about all of those things. Or there's people who are like, this rheumatoid arthritis is what saved my life from cancer. And you're that latter group of people. <laughs> well, you know, it is, it is funny. I think, uh, you know, when, when the RA was hitting, when the symptoms were bad for those 18 months, it did get bad. And in hindsight, I probably was, you know, whether it's clinically depressed or not, it was impacting me. But mm. when I got back on the, when, when they diagnosed it and I got on treatment, it was as though it was lifted. And, and so it's funny where those are real things to be worried about cancer and rheumatoid arthritis. Those don't really keep me up at night. It is the fears of these un, intangible things that are likely not that, not even likely to happen where I, I found uh, that you, you know, I call it just ruminating where you're just ruminating on things going, why am I even worrying about this? Mm. Um, and so I think it's been, it's been an interesting challenge as I've tried to grow up to start to analyze like what, you know, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? How do I change this? Um, an ongoing process <laughs> that honestly, and I will say, I'm sorry, I would say a quarantine. This has been, this has been, I'm, you know, finding the silver linings. Um, in this, obviously, this is not what we wanted to have happen, but this has been a forced time to slow down that I don't know that I would have taken otherwise, where I was traveling. It really, I was going to New York every week and I was traveling for shows and I, I wasn't home for more than probably three days in seven months. And I wasn't taking care of myself physically or emotionally, I think. And it was, it was catching up. I was, I wasn't I wasn't feeling good. And this slowing down, mm. this quarantine has forced me to really reevaluate my life. And, and I think, you know, when we're trying to find the silver linings, I think this is an opportunity. I know I would, I'd never would have taken for myself and never really had before. And I, I think to, to reevaluate how you're living your life and how you're caring for yourself. And, and for me, I know I spent the first week plus of quarantine in my bed playing Assassin's Creed or ordering takeout and just going, what am I doing? And eventually I had to unplug my PlayStation and go, what are you doing? And I've started cooking and it's just been this, this thing of these obvious things. I'm, I'm obviously, you know, I think these are things that most people have come to in their lives already. But for me, this opportunity to slow down and to say, how am I living my life? How can I live it a little more intentionally? Or how can I try to choose these things? I, I, I guess, despite feeling like I'd been very successful, a lot of it had happened by saying yes to everything and just feeling like I'm in a ship and it's, I'm at sea and I'm just along for a ride. And I don't know where it's going. So far, it's worked out pretty well. And, and it had been a, a growing sense of, of dis-ease over that over the past few years that Quarantine has kind of uh, allowed me to evaluate and say, I, I didn't like that. I didn't like that feeling of, even though it was working out, this sense of, I, I guess the reason I felt the anxiety was because, because I wasn't consciously choosing things, because I wasn't really being intentional with it. Mm. I, I guess that's why I felt like the winds could easily shift and all of a sudden I'd be in a direction I didn't want to be. And not to say that you insulate yourself from these changes, from these, from losing jobs, but this idea more of, I know where I want to go and I'm going to move in that direction regardless of what's happening. 
I think that that is one of those one of these epiphanies that I hope sticks with me after this. That has been um, something that is fundamentally I feel like changing for me. That has been a big epiphany that I think started ten years ago when I woke up going, "Oh my God, I'm going to die soon." To now, oh, this is what this is what growing up is. It's kind of this you know, finding that North Star, finding that beacon in life that's drawing you forward and saying, I'm going to move towards that and try to put my life in alignment with that in all the ways, instead of saying, whatever happens, I'll just try to make the best of it. And, and it's not a huge shift, I think, necessarily in, in how you're living your day-to-day life, but I think of, of how you think about things and, and approach things. For me, it has been, um, it has been a big shift. And again, you know, I, I for sure for most people everyone's going, yeah, yeah, we figured that out in high school, bro. I'm I'm a little slow to things. But that's 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 comedy. That's a comedian. That's an interesting oh, it, it is, and it is it very much is an immature, you know, and, and that's I think one of the risks of of this profession is Sam, I think what you were saying where you know, what do you focus on? Focus on the crowd, you focus on yourself. It it is this is a, a self-centered career because of you know. We've seen now everyone's job, the security is a bit of an illusion, but, but for comedy and, and for TV, you know, you're living week to week with ratings. I, I think there is an uncertainty that you kind of accept, but really trying, I think, to, to, not, to not let that dominate how you view your life or your self-worth or your validation, um, but to say, Hey, regardless of what happens, I'm still gonna keep moving forward in this way, and and believing that you will get, you know, whether this whether American Ninja Warrior gets canceled or or whatever, like, hey, I'll be okay because I'm still gonna keep moving forward in that direction and and figure out a way to to make things work. Since you bring up Ninja Warrior, there's something about the perseverance that you had throughout it because it's not like, oh, I got American Ninja Warrior. That was the first thing I got. Man, you have a laundry list. A oh, long, you mean these shows behind me that are all oh. gone away? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for people who are listening, Matt's got a poster of all the shows that are... Uh, yeah, Screenplay and Clean and The Apprentice, you know, which was a prime example of something where I'm the new Celebrity Apprentice, or as many people say, the last Celebrity Apprentice because the show was canceled after me. I, you know, and, and I've got to, I was just talking to somebody where I, I, I think the point of medicine is a safe career. It would have been uh, probably an easy decision to stay in it and say, I'm betting that if I'm a doctor, I'll be safe. I'll be secure. I'll, I'll have a job. I'll, my life will work out fine. And I think when you choose entertainment, what you're doing is you're betting on not the career. You're not betting on the shows or anything. You're betting on yourself. You're betting that I will find a way. I believe I'll work hard enough. I believe I have enough talent that I'll find a way to make a living. Um, it may not be $20 million a picture. It may not be, you know, limousines, but it'll be doing something I love and I'll figure out a way to make it work. And I think in life, you know, that's one of the things that I've really been glad is that I've chosen this career where you get to bet on yourself because I see people who've chosen careers in finance or, or law or whatever, who don't love what they do. And they feel trapped and their career has become, you know, it is a job. It is where they go there. You know, I remember that, that, uh, lover boy, everybody's working for the weekend and you know, that's what it is, a job, but to have something where I love what I do 
I love hosting American Ninja Warrior Live Rescue. I love doing stand-up. I love talking to groups. I love that. It's not, a jo- the job is the stress when you don't have a job. It's getting the job. But it's such a good feeling to love what you do and to have been able, to been fortunate enough to, to have a life where I get to do that is, uh, that's been, I think that's been like a awesome. Well, it's, it's interesting to me hearing this because the only way you would have gotten to the place you did yeah. is by saying yes, right? Like you're saying yes, you're saying yes, you're, you're saying, you know, Celebrity Apprentice, they need someone for the show. You say yes. Like you're making sure that whenever there's an open door, you're taking advantage of it. Yes. And now you're at a point where you can start to say no. And so it seems like this is this has been a pause for you because you're almost taking stock of yeah. I, and I, I that has been one of the advice that I've that I've given people is say yes to everything. And I, I I think I have a small caveat for that now, but it is still something where look nothing happens nothing will happen sitting on your couch waiting for people to discover you. There are no matter how talented you are, there are a lot of people just as talented who are working their asses off to make things happen. And, and what I found is, you know, yeah, all these shows are canceled, but the very first show I had screenplay in 2004, it lasted one season, but it led to a home makeover show, Clean House, that it for five and a half years. And that helped me buy my house. And I, I won an Emmy for that. And that led to Sports Soup, which only lasted two seasons, but that got me American Ninja Warrior, which is the job I have today. So that job in 2004 um, even though it lasted one season and was critically panned by everybody except PJ was kind to my mom, um, it got me all these other jobs. And a lot of it was, you know, going in and getting to know the casting directors then too. And, and I've, I've been very much someone who is, I'm excited to work and I'm excited to show up for an opportunity. I'm excited to do someone's podcast because you don't know what can happen from it. You don't know who's watching. You don't know who they can become. And even if nothing does, it's still doing what you love. It's still getting you closer, getting you better at what you do, giving you practice, giving you those reps. Now, I, I am at the point now where I still want to say yes to everything, but I am also saying, how do you value your time? How do you say no to some things so you can say yes to the right things? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be more selective in things. And, and if I am saying yes to something, if, if I'm like, well, then find a reason to say yes to it. You know, if, if, and if you can't, then say no. But, but the, the amount of times where, you know, a, a meeting five years ago, whatever it is, all of a sudden somebody calls and goes, you know, nothing happened. Nothing, I didn't have anything, but now you popped into my head. And so I think that there is, a, and, and that's the other thing is being gracious when you're fired, being gracious when things end, because everything ends. Everything goes away, but you may have an opportunity to work again with those people. And that's, that's inherently a humor, like a humor based mindset, right? The, the, the basis of improv is yes. And yes. right. Like accepting yes. and bringing it in the basis of comedies being like opening yourself up to every different angle. You can explore a joke, every different possible audience. Like there is this openness um, and acceptance that is inherent in the art forms and in the professions that you've chosen that is, you know, I think almost become now a part of how you guys have adapted and, and yeah, kind of and I think, and you know, I think your yes becomes more powerful and better when you really start to figure out what it is you want and where you're headed. 
and being able to say, I'm going to say yes to this mm-hmm. because of this. Um, I think it, and, and, and if you saying no to say, I'm not just, you know, this is why I'm saying no to, for whatever reason. So yeah, I, I think there is something of being open to that possibility and, and just, and, and not even necessarily, you know, expecting something from it, but being open to it um, and being patient enough to say, it may not be today, tomorrow, or even in a few years, it could take a long time. But if you're in this, you're in this for the long haul and realizing this is a marathon, not a sprint. So one thing that I, I, I do want to point out, and this is a little bit of inside baseball, because I've got to, I mean, I've watched Matt's career, we've been friends, I've had the phone calls. But the thing that I, I think was Matt's like, finest showcase of not only the performer, uh, his intellect and his heart was when he won the Celebrity Apprentice. Because the night before he mm-hmm. he was going, we went out to dinner. He was talking about it. Matt was nervous, but he did all his due diligence. He, he read Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger was host. He read Arnold Schwarzenegger's book. He watched all the Celebrity Apprentice. He went in with a game plan. But the thing that really pushed him over as as you were watching it was it was his offstage life experience. Like for me, the struggle with RA, all those years of that combined with what Ninja Warrior gave him, combined with his relationships, combined with the talent that he nurtured over the years, all came together. And it just put him above, it really put him above everyone else because everyone else had a charity. Everyone else is like, oh, I'm doing this or that. But it, it wasn't in their, you know, lack of a better word, in their bones like it was in Matt's. Like Matt <laughs> was just, he, he, was, he knew he was there <laughs> and he knew that his winning was bigger than himself. It was stressful, you know, and again, in entertainment, I, I'm a host. I don't risk anything. On Ninja Warrior, PJ's been on the course, and he put more of long. himself out there in, in his three runs than I have in over 10 years. I don't, I don't risk anything. If I really screw up, we can always pick it up again. And it's been such a different experience. It was such a different experience doing Celebrity Apprentice where all of a sudden, I'm the one being judged. And there was a part of me that loved it because, you know, I do love, I love a challenge. And, but it was just what I think you said, PJ, for me, what I loved was it did feel like it called on everything I'd done from the discipline of medicine, from sports, the lessons of sports and being a teammate from hosting and, and, and being able to work a crowd to stand up comedy, to being funny from like pop culture knowledge. It, it was so much fun to feel like, I was being challenged. Like you're, you know, you're this horse who's been pent up. It's like, all right, go stretch your legs, see what you can do. And, and I think the other thing that was nice was to feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger was someone who really rewarded taking a risk and, and putting yourself out there with performance. And, you know, I did lip sync battle and then I just did RuPaul's celebrity drag race. And the thing is I will go for something. I don't mind looking like a jackass. I would rather go all in than do something half-assed. And Schwarzenegger, I think, really uh, nurtured that and appreciated it. And it's been, it's been for me so much fun to to go on and and RuPaul. The, so it just aired, and when we did it, I, I, it was an amazing experience. But seeing people's response to, I, I think, me being able to go in there and, and just the, the willingness to say, I will go full drag. I'll do Celine Dion. I'll do it all. To to, to it was unbelievably gratifying to hear people and and Ross Matthews said something so lovely on the show where he said, Matt, you look like every bully who used to torment me every day in high school. Mm. And to see you up here 
uh, embracing it. He's, it, it has been an amazing experience. And I thought, wow, what a, for me to get to dress up as a woman and get to, to feel that and to hear this from people was an awesome experience. And I think it's this, you know, to have the willingness to try something, to embrace, you know, another, another, another life, another skin, whatever it is to try that and to throw yourself into it, which I think is what comedy is to a certain extent is we, when you're really doing stand-up comedy, you're naked, you're naked up there Mm. because if people aren't laughing, it's not that they may not find your jokes funny. You feel like they don't find you funny. And I think that ability to have been on stage Mm. and to peel it down and, and the more you strip it down and to stop putting all the little bells and whistles on it to keep you safe, but to just say, this is me. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm better doing it in, in drag than I am in stand-up comedy. But I think that's, you know, it, it was another reminder of the power of, you know, really trying to inhabit your skin. And sometimes you do that by trying other things on. You continue to have a growth mindset. And there are so many people our age that just stop. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, I have all the answers. And when you do something like that, like you just mentioned what Ross had to say, is uh, not only are you successful like on IMDb, but there are all these amazing moments. Like you, like you and I share this and we, we, we look at our lives and we go, we're so rich in these amazing moments. Yeah. And people can't take those from you. Yeah. You know, there's no value on it. And just when you were talking about what Ross had to say, I'm like, that is, a, again, it's just part of that, that, that growth, you know? You've had this breadth of experience. I'm wondering, are there any specific stories from from these times that, like, you really go back on, like, like just a richness that you return to? Yeah, you know, it's it's. Um, I I actually I started talking about this on stage. I call them '80s movie moments. So I felt like every great '80s movie would have one of those moments where it just you wanted to stand on your chair. And I always talk about Rudy, which is technically in the '90s. But, but when, you know, the groundskeeper has to give him that talk about he wanted to quit. And he's like, you're five foot nothing, a hundred nothing. And you held it with the best players in the land. And you're walking out of here with an education. In this life, you got to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. And I just like, like I love, I love those moments in movies. And, and you know, like doing comedy, you know, you're, you don't risk anything as much. I always joke, but, it, but I think, when you, when you have a moment and, and I, I think for me, cause and PJ was, was so good about this. Cause I was bemoaning, you know, I, we shot apprentice well before the election had happened and NBC was sh- presenting this show to be huge. And I knew at that point, I, I didn't know I'd won, but I knew I was final too. And I'm like, this is going to be a great showcase. I think people are going to see me in a different light. And I thought this could, this could really change my career. And then it gets so politicized. They burn off the episodes and nobody watches it. And I was, I was kind of bummed and I was, I was complaining about it. And PJ, PJ once said, you're friends with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You want, what more would you have wanted? And I just thought, yeah, to, to, to get to, when I grew up, he's, he's still on the hit pred, the predator poster has been on my bedroom wall since since my sophomore year of high school. Like I grew up with him on my walls and now through this ridiculous career, I've, I've gotten to become friends with him. I've gotten to work with him and travel with him and to learn from him and talk about an unbelievably impressive and inspiring guy where, you know, when you surround yourself with people, if you have a chance to be around people like that, people who just have this, this shining light, this, this vision, this 
unshakable confidence and, and this uh, unstoppable vision. When you're around them, it inspires you and elevates you. And I'm like, I think that's why PJ Bats and I also, we always clicked is comedy can be a negative place. But the three of us were always positive. We liked mm -hmm. our lives. We loved our families. And we didn't want to pretend to be anything else. And to find people, I think, who share those values or those, that vision with you and surround yourself with them, that, that elevates you rather than dragging you down. So, you know, if I think of moments, you know, Apprentice, uh, Apprentice has been certainly one of, the, one of the biggest ones and to still have become... Uh, to have stayed friends with him. And I think, you know, it's also been with the Arthritis Foundation. I got to go to a, a summer camp with these kids. And I remember some of them coming up to, to, to me and saying, I have arthritis just like you. I want to be a ninja someday. And just thinking, wow, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not saving lives. But you see how you can still, in the most ridiculous ways, doing this most ridiculous profession, you can still have an impact on people's lives with your comedy. You can still brighten up somebody's day. You can change their point of view on something. And when he won the Celebrity Apprentice, we were we were, we went to Phoenix. Yeah, and I was playing a comedy club, and Bats and I went out there just to join him for the weekend. And the final four was going on, and Matt's like, "This is a bucket list thing. We got to do this. We got to we get we all got to go to final four. And before this is something Matt will always do. Before we even say anything, Matt's like, "I got tickets." So Matt, Michael, and I go we're watching the final four and we got last minute tickets up in the stands but matt is getting stopped everywhere like you know matt we go around and every once in a while people are like ninja warrior this that but this was a completely different level like i felt like i was walking with larry the cable guy like that kind of like everyone was stopping this, that. and matt's loving it like this is like oh, he's it. like yeah 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 so we're all the way up there watching the game. One guy comes up and he's You like, gotta make clear where we are. We're in a football stadium. We're at the university, yeah. the 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 Phoenix where the Cardinals play. We are in the upper deck in one of the last rows. I mean, we are we are like I a mile, a mile from the basketball court in this stadium. <laughs> I burnt my hat in one of the lights. So <laughs> so we're up there, and this guy comes up, he lugs all the way up to the top, and he goes, Matt Eisman. He goes, Man, you were great on the on the celebrity apprentice. I, you know. I'm a huge fan of Ninja Warrior. Do you mind if I get to take a picture? Well, no problem. And I think I even took the picture. I'm like, you know, because I'm oh, not a problem. We take the picture. And then he looks at Matt and he looks all the way down. And he goes, what are you doing sitting all the way up here? <laughs> <laughs> and dude, that's the greatest part about having friends because Matt just turns and he looks at us and we all just died. There it is. Life will bring you down. Life will <laughs> yeah, but it's, you. but. Uh, Humble you. <laughs> yeah. But that's the great, that, and that's the comedy part. That's the comedy yeah. part. Uh, and and, and I, something that Sam and I were doing when we were talking about uh, discussing leading up to this episode, it is amazing to me, again, to revisit the struggle you had with RA. Mm -hmm. You go through this, Celebrity Apprentice, not only did it you know, show that you had cancer at that point, but then it actually ended up leading you to meet your hero. Yeah. This is called In Stitches. Yeah. Here is something that cut you repairs and then there's the, the the other side and you're you're an example of that we you know it it, it is funny peach because i've been thinking about that where we all have our scars whether they're visible or not and and we carry them in life and it is one of those things of you know instead of hiding them there is a certain amount of man you really gotta you gotta own them you gotta you gotta embrace them because they're a part of you and and it is one of those things when when you're truly okay with them I think that's, it is this liberating 
feeling. You know, it is, it is like that thing of being on stage, like, man, bring it on. I, I, I am ready for whatever. And it's, you know, again, it, it is this ongoing journey, but, but, uh, and you know, it's great. I, I love being able to have an opportunity like this and, you know, with the armed services arts partnership, it's been unbelievable seeing people who faced real serious adversity and who are coming back and who really are using comedy for good. And the opportunity PJ and uh, that Sam, you, you set up for us where we've sat down in writing sessions and we've, we've been on shows with them. We've, we've gotten to do online performances with them and to see, I, I think the joy to, to see the joy that comedy brings them and to know how crucial that joy, how that, that for them, this could be the first light they've seen, in, you know, since becoming a soldier, since coming back. And, and it, it really is awesome to, to, I think, see, uh, the power of comedy and why I think, you know, what, what I love about this podcast is, Hey, you're, you're talking about really heavy subjects, but we're not afraid to laugh about it. And I think, you know, that that's one of the things, whenever I tell my stories, I want people to laugh about it because I'm okay with it. I'm okay mm. with having rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. I'm okay with having cancer. People take their cues from you. And if you can laugh about it, then people are like, Oh, then I guess I can be okay with it too. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great place. Uh, we can go to our uh, closing question. Oh, here it is. <laughs> oh no, you you it's a big one. I big, mean, you've talked a little bit about one. you know you've have you've had this experience where you're thinking about you know what is my role in the world, what is my legacy. So, how do you want to be remembered, Matt Eisman? Oh boy, uh, I feel like I should have an answer for this. I. Uh, I don't, you know, I, I, the thing that popped into my head is like, uh, he's a great friend. I think that is to me, one of the joys in my life has been people. Um, God, I, my brother actually said something beautiful about this. There was someone I had asked him and I, I have a joke where I've, I've been, and it's true. You know, I've been to probably now close to or over a hundred weddings. And my brother said, Matt's always the best man at a wedding, even if he's not the best man. And I just thought, man, that's a nice thing to say. Cause it's, mm-hmm. but it, it is that thing of, I, I, I always, I, I want to bring joy to people's lives. I think that's why I went into medicine and turned out that wasn't the way to do it. But I think that's one of the things I love with comedy is, and, and whenever I'm doing a show, whether it's Ninja Warrior or something, I always want it to feel like I'm throwing a party and I want everybody to feel welcome yep. and I want everybody to have a blast. And I hope, you know, I think that's what I would love for people to remember about me is, man, you know, I want them to feel like I'm their friend. I want them to feel like, man, this guy is a great friend. And, you know, for, for people who are my friends in life, like PJ and Michael, and, you know, I always want to, I've gotten so much out of the friendships in my life that for me, it's, I, I the toughest thing with quarantine has been not being able to physically be around my friends. And so I always want them to feel how much I appreciate having them in my life. And that if it weren't for them, you know, then, then what's the point of all of this, right? What's the point if you don't have people in your life? And, you know, hopefully I'll have a family of my own someday. But in the meantime, I feel like my friends are my family. So, I, you know, I think it'd be remembered as a great friend. And funny, <laughs> funny friend, hopefully. Well, and I'll back that up because you were one of the best men at my wedding. 
<laughs> you know, and one of the reasons I did pick him is Matt is big about saying yes to everything. So I made sure he talked to my wife before we even did the vows. <laughs> Listen to what Matt has to say. And as far as being a friend and just so everyone knows, you're, there's not a better guy. There isn't. Actually, on my pillow, it says you're friends with Matt Eisman. What else do you want? <laughs> Elena loves that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually have a cardboard cutout. Oh, I had a cardboard cutout of myself in my house. So uh, that's that. uh, But to back that up, back up what you said, Matt, and you will be remembered by that because after my wedding, that's when Sam got to really, really talk to you. And Sam sent me a message that said, you are surrounded by the best people. You you know, and. Well, your wedding was one of the best I've ever been to because of that, where I felt every single person who was there, you wanted to be there and they wanted to be there. And it was such, it felt like yep. people I'd never met. I was like, you're my, fr-, you know, me, Bo. Like, you're guys, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'd have been friends with these guys. Like, that, and that's, you know, I, I think the, the, which is the, the more you get in line, man, those are the moments to, to be around friends like that, to have moments like that. Those, those are the moments that stand out. And it's, it's like, I want more, want more of those. We'll get back to it. We, I, I got to get married or something. <laughs> Have a party. Matt Eisman, thank you so much for joining in Stitches. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, guys. Love you, Matt. See ya. What, what do you think your big takeaway was? I was very happy that he would his final answer. I was very happy that mm. he wants to be remembered as a, f- a really good friend because that's that's how I look at him. And and I think that's uh, you take away the, the lights and the cameras and everything. I mean, without your friends and family, what is there? For me, the thing that stuck with with me was that middle part where he was talking a lot about like comedy during rheumatoid arthritis started as it was for him. Like I'm doing this for me. And it evolved over time into this is for me. And it's for other people. And like, he seems to have a very healthy approach to comedy and to approach his like kind of his relationship to humor is it's both generative for him on a personal level. And it's something that allows him to build relationships to give back and serve to bring joy to people. And I love that he has that balance on both sides. Yeah. Yeah, he does. I mean, if there's anybody that has it. All right, well, that wraps up another episode of In Stitches. Another successful episode, Sam. A lot of people to thank. A lot of people to thank. First and foremost, Dr. Matt Eisman for being really open with us. And also for our amazing executive producer, David Bobro, for seeing every episode through from planning to execution to putting it together. So very grateful for you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Do us a favor. Uh, please follow us on all the In Stitches social media platforms and go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Because if, if you do that, we, you can help us get to the new and newsworthy podcast section. And if we get there, Sam, like people are going to learn more. They're going to hear more great stories, more of these awesome uh, guests that we have. And do us a favor. If you know someone who you think would be a great guest, for the Institutes podcast, please reach out to us and let us know. Boom. Well, that's another episode of Institutes, PJ. Yep, another one in the books. 
or in the podcast or in the earphones. <laughs> this has been in stitches. <laughs>